Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going to John chapter 8. We went through this, this account where Jesus had a woman who was uh, caught in the act of adultery. Remember that? And she was caught in the act of adultery and they, they brought her before him. into. He's, he's literally in the, uh, the courtyard, not just the Gent- court of the Gentiles. He's in the next court right into the temple complex itself uh, called the court of the women. And they bring her and they put her in front of of uh, him and they say uh, she's been caught in the very act of adultery the law of Moses says she should be stoned what do you say and then uh, you recall his response he he knelt down and and wrote in the dirt remember that and we saw that there's a prophecy in in Jeremiah Uh, it's it's very amazing it said Jeremiah has said uh, that he said you you rejected me saith the Lord, the fountain of life, uh, fountain of, of living water, excuse me, the fountain of living water. You rejected me, saith the Lord, the fountain of, the, of living water, and hewn for yourselves cisterns. That's over there in that culture, you dig these, you dig these wells in the, in the rock, and you line them with plaster so they don't leak and all, and you, and, but you hewn, hewn for yourselves cisterns, you know, just containing water and getting stale. He said, only they're broken cisterns that don't even hold water. He says, you've rejected me, the fountain of living water. The day before this event with the woman being placed in front of him took place, he had stood in, in, up in, the, in, the, in, in that same courtyard and said, is anyone thirsty? Let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being, as scripture said, will flow rivers of living water. Remember that? So here's that image. uh, Jeremiah goes on to say, they rejected me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, and they will be, their names shall be written in the dirt, in the earth. In other words, not in heaven, in the Lamb's Book of Life, not in heaven in, in, in the record of the saved. Their names shall be written in the dirt. Buried here, left here forgotten here that's a prophetic symbol and they all know this passage this is a big one they still quote this still gets quoted in israel and and so he's kneeling down doing that prophetic symbol while they're putting this woman in front they then insisted that he that he uh, uh, make a decision and so he stood up and he, he said uh, he who is without sin what cast the first stone you want a stoner and one of you, you want to enforce the, the, the law? Shall we get down here and say everything that the law says we've got to do? All right, which one of you uh, shouldn't be stoned? Go ahead, toss a stone. He, he's, he's, he's putting it right on them. And they're very convicted. And they, it is a wonderful moment to watch. They drift away one at a time. Under conviction, they drift away one at a time. Going, no, I'm not going there. And, uh, and so he says, you want to inflict the law? You want to keep the letter of the law, do you? Then how, let's apply it to you first, you who judge yourself first, and then when you're those who are righteous, you go ahead and stone her. And, and they had the integrity. You've got to admit, this is character. 
They walked away from this thing going, no, I can't do that. So it's a great moment. And then he, he actually knelt down and did the writing in the dirt again. Uh, everyone left, all the accusers. The crowd's still there. Uh, and the accusers walked away. And he, he stood up and he, and he said, woman, where are your accusers? And, and, and she said, there are none, Lord. And he said, and neither do I accuse you, neither do I condemn you. And then what was the next phrase he said? Go and sin no more. Yeah. All right. So that's that. I, we went through that. And I felt something as I went through it. But I thought, no, we'll move on. But the Lord just said, no, you come back. There's something I want to show you here today. And it ties in with the passage that we're studying in John 8. We're in John chapter 8, verse uh, Today, I'm going to read you through verse 19 down to verse 24. This is the day after uh, the situation with the woman. He has uh, said, I am the light of the world. We, we saw the wonder of all of that, with the great torches in that courtyard. Then this debate happens with the Pharisees. And he says this to them. So they were saying to him, that's these religious leaders, these ultra-Orthodox uh, who, are, who are there, the, the Pharisees. They were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Would you, would you say that? If you knew me, you would know my father also. This is a huge theme in the, in the Gospel of John. Jesus is saying, when you see me, you see God. Everything I say, I heard from him. Everything I do, I watched him see. So when you look at me, you're watching God in the flesh. Did you follow that? This is really important. And it's really important in this. So everything you see me do is what God does. Everything you hear me say is what he said. So you're looking at, at God, as it were, in the flesh. You can look at him as you watch me. These words he, t he spoke in the treasury. It's an area of that court of the women. As he taught in the temple. And no one seized him because his, his hour had not yet come. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. I will uh, be crucified and I'll, I'll ascend to heaven. So the Jews were saying... Again, it doesn't mean all the Jewish people. It means the religious leaders were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. It doesn't mean hell. He means of the world. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And we saw that another week. Therefore, I said to you that that you will die in your sins, now here it is, for unless you believe that I am, now does yours have he after it in italics? It has he in italics because it's not there in the Greek. Uh, the, the translators feel like, well, we ought to put it in, and he's the I am what? So, so they, uh, they, they stick the he in there to make themselves feel better about it. And then it says, if you do not believe that I am, is what he says, you will die in your sins. We're talking today about rules. It's getting confusing. Many Christians seem headed in opposite directions. One group is becoming more and more legalistic, pointing to all the rules in the Old Testament and insisting that they are eternal, which means they must be obeyed forever. Another group is becoming more and more lawless, 
pointing to the fact that when Jesus died for our sins, he died for all of them. Uh, So it doesn't matter if a believer continues to sin. They say everything is under grace. Both groups quote from the Bible to support their positions. But they say very different things and present a very different picture of God. One group is rediscovering the law. The other is abandoning it altogether. So who's right and who's wrong? And what if both are wrong? Then, Then how would we discover the right way? Are we just supposed to obey all those rules or not? And the most important question of all is how will we know for sure that we, that we are right? Thankfully, there is an answer, a rock-solid answer. And it's not an answer that comes from someone's opinion or from a clever argument. It's an answer that comes from God himself. But he doesn't tell us this answer. He shows us his answer. He lets us watch as he applies his own rules to someone who has broken the rules. And what we discover is that he is neither legalistic nor lawless. He's exactly like Jesus. Their question is odd. They asked, where is your father? And we might have expected them to ask, who is your father? And if they had, they would have revealed that they were confused about who he meant when he kept referring to my father Or the father who sent me. By now the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Knew the special relationship Jesus was claiming. When he called God his father. During an earlier encounter. John reported their reaction to him this way. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was calling God his own father. Making himself what? Look at that. They know what he's saying. He is saying I am the divine son of God. They know it. They hear it. And and so they weren't confused. They were offended. They were trying to mock him. They were daring him to show them God. In effect, they were saying, if you have such a special relationship with God, prove it. If he's the second witness uh, that will confirm who you are, you are who you claim to be. Let's see him. Jesus responded, you know, neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. He was saying they needed to stop judging him according to the flesh. If they really wanted an answer to their question, all they needed to do was observe the active work of God taking place through him. Jesus was powerfully and accurately expressing the character and works of God. This was not the first time they were hearing him teach or watching him minister. They'd seen him many times before. And if at any point they had evaluated the situation honestly... They would have recognized the Father's wisdom, power, compassion, and presence at work through him. Jesus would not show them the Father by performing a miracle or let them peer into heaven. There was plenty of evidence right before them. Let me, let me stop there a moment. Frederick mentioned the Salishan uh, VBS that was held this week and how well it went. You have 200 plus children and youth who are not churched, coming together, does that strike you as a peaceful moment? No. <laughs> but it was. O- oddly so. Wonderfully so. Two women who, who, who were just there observing, they were just sitting there observing, uh, someone actually passed by and heard one say to the other, 
It is so peaceful here. What, what, what was she feeling? She was sensing the spirit. Look, I, I keep saying this, but we do, you, gotta, you, you and I got to get just kind of clear our minds from the way our world thinks. You are spiritual. So is every human being. We are born spiritual. We are created in God's image. That hasn't changed. And that means we're spirit. When you're, you're, you are a spiritual being. So you feel things that you don't understand through your head. You sense things. You know things that your head doesn't tell you. And it's not crazy and it's not psychological. It's not hormones. It is, it is, it is, it is the spiritual perception. What are they doing? They're sensing something's here and it's very peaceful. Something's here and it's very peaceful. Picture a ministry of Jesus. Here are these religious leaders. These are, these are spiritual, in this case, mostly men. These are spiritual men. They read the word. They, this group believes in, in, in God and in miracles. They're, these are not the atheistic group. They, they believe that stuff. So here is, here is, are people getting healed? Can you imagine the presence when Jesus taught? I mean, with me, it's, imagine with him. Imagine what it felt like to sit there when the, when, when the Lord himself is teaching. It would be breathtaking. It was. It was. So they're saying to him, prove it. And, he, and he's saying, if what you're, if, if, are, you, are you asking me to do tricks? Are you asking, you know, C.S. Lewis says God doesn't do tricks. In other words, he's not going to, you know, prove it's God. Okay, God, make the moon come up purple, you know, or, or, or make the sky go pink, you know, something like he doesn't do tricks to prove himself. When he does a miracle, it's because it's needed. There's a reason and a purpose, and love drives everything he does. So if he does a miracle, it's because his love chose to do the miracle, not because you dared him to do one. You follow me? He's God. We're not. That's a foundational principle here. And so they're going, show us God. And, and they're in effect, I suppose, pull back the curtain of heaven and let us peek into, into, into the throne room. And, and, and he's just not going there. And he's saying, you're spiritual beings. You sense what everybody else senses. If you're going to be so dishonest as to ignore the witness and presence of God, to, to, wit, to ignore the tremendous love and power of God that's going on in front of your eyes. You are watching healings. You are watching deliverances. You are seeing people uh, transformed in front of your eyes. If that won't do it for you, I'm not giving you anything else. Because you're not honest. You're not integrous. You're, 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 you're gaming the, the, the situation. You're looking for a loophole. You're not honest. God never pursues the, the dishonest heart like that. He waits for it to run its course and come back. Feels <laughs> like, okay, okay. You know, now, now we'll talk. But we'll never, we'll never sort of dare him into something. So that's, that's the dialogue at this point. As he said, and so he says, if you knew who I was, if you sensed what's going on here, it would mean you knew him. It means you recognize the true spirit of the Father because I am expressing the spirit of the Father perfectly right now. He told these Pharisees that they won't go to heaven because there's something they do not believe. What is it they don't believe? 
He said they don't believe I am. And no, he didn't say what it was he is. It's possible he expected them to finish the statement with some of the things he'd said recently, such as, I am the light of the world, or I am the one who knows where I came from and where I'm going. But it's also possible he means by I am something that he was going to say at the very end of this conversation, that, that he is the I am who existed before Abraham. That means he is the I am who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. In other words, he, he is asking them to believe that he is the divine son of God. And if they don't, he says, they will die in their sins. Uh, let me say something. This isn't just a theological confession he's looking for. If you meet Jesus and reject him, you are now in trouble. He's not talking about everyone who hasn't met him and doesn't know. This is not a comment that anyone who's not sort of said this thing and, you know, all over the earth is in this condition. You meet him, you see him, you come encounter with the truth and you walk away from it. Then you are a light lever. <laughs> it's John three. And that's what they're doing. And so he said, they said, he's saying, you can't stand here. Watch all this, hear all this, and then walk away. You do it. You're showing the condition of your heart toward God. When we read this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees, we might assume that he was asking them to believe something so unfamiliar to someone raised in Judaism that no one could believe it. Who could blame the Pharisees for doubting that this man was standing there, this man standing there talking to them was God's son, that he could be the I am of the Old Testament. But in fact, John will say that many came to believe in him. And he specifically mentions that those numbers included Jews, meaning religious leaders or Pharisees. So what Jesus is saying about himself is not foreign to their ear. Their debate was not about how could such a thing be? Could God have a son or could that son become a man? Their debate was about whether or not Jesus was the son of God for whom they had been waiting it's important to note that many of these people who are highly educated in the Bible believed his claim. You know what's going to push a lot of them over the fence? The raising of Lazarus. They all know Lazarus. Lazarus is a very powerful, influential man in, that, in, in Jerusalem, in that community. He's a member of the upper circle somehow. And when he died, they're all at his funeral. And they're all at the wake. I mean, they're, they're there mourning. And then for Jesus to walk in, and they've, they've seen this dead body and the thing for, and then to watch him walk out in the, in the grave clause, I mean, that really created a stir. <laughs> to, to the point that Caiaphas, who's an evil man, says, if we don't stop this now, everybody's going to believe in him. We're losing our leaders now. The leaders are going after him. We've we got to stop this thing. We've got to kill this guy. Uh, they were going to kill Lazarus, too. Teach him to come back to life and create a political problem. I'm not kidding. Would you, create, would you kill somebody that got resurrected from the dead after four days? Bang! Get out of here. Go back where you came from. The Bible is full of rules. Things God commanded us to do and things he commanded us to not do. Someone counted them and said there are 613 rules in the first five books of the Bible alone. Rules about daily life, how to perform religious ceremonies, how to conduct civil government, how to manage business matters, and how to prosecute criminal activities. 
as you read through those, these rules, you soon discover they're not the sort of rules that humans make up on their own. Anyone who observes these rules ends up living life very differently from those who don't. At their root, God's rules are designed to teach us how to love. How to love him and how to love each other. And each rule has been given to us as an expression of his love for us. These are not mean rules. This is a father teaching children. He's calling us upward. Would you say upward? It's, that is, this is a big deal. I'm, it's coming clearer and clearer to me. He's calling us upward to become like him. Peter said, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Yeah. This isn't a matter of God running a, a little farm down here on the planet, trying to get everybody to do what he asks. This is a father raising children he is he he's you even look at his food laws you look at you look at his sexual laws he's saying he's saying because you're my children you come up to my level i want you to be holy i want you to be different i want you to be like me you follow this it isn't just a matter of sort of no you can't do that no you can't do that it's it's come up haven't, is there any family that's ever existed that didn't say this? I don't care what the neighbors do. You belong to this family and we're not doing it. Amen? I mean, it's a mantra. If you haven't learned that, it's about to be in every parenting class. If you, are, you know, I don't care what their parents let them do, but you're not doing it. You, you know, you're a, and fill in your last name. Right? This is how you do it. That's what God's doing. I don't care what the neighbors do. You belong to me. And we don't do that. And we don't eat that. And we don't, we don't, you know, we clean up our camp. We don't walk in that. We don't have, we, we don't behave like that. You're holy. You're sons and daughters. I'm raising you to be with me forever. See, this is about forever. This is about you and I serving and being resurrected and being literally children of God forever. You come up, come up. Come up to my level. That's where we're headed. That's what this is all about. This isn't about kind of making it through your lifetime. This is about us being raised up as eternal children of God. Being taught now. So the lessons start now. The character development starts now. Um, the, the attitudes start now. Come up and be my children. Some of the rules are stern. And some have punishments that are severe. Even calling for death. But as, as we learn today, God didn't give them to us to hurt us, but to bring us back to him. His goal is to correct us, not destroy us. How do we know that? It is right here in front of us in John chapter 8. The God who wrote the rules is showing us how to apply his rules. Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. He's telling us to watch him. Because he's doing exactly what the father would do. Well, what did he do? When a woman who was indisputably guilty of breaking a very important rule was placed in front of Jesus, her accusers asked him for a verdict. The first thing we have to observe is what he did not do. He didn't enforce the rules. Would you say that? He didn't. Now, I know it's a little hard to say. It's like, huh? 
This is, this is counterintuitive, isn't it? Say it again. He didn't enforce the rules. Instead, he used the rules to show her her need of grace. Now, the law of Moses does command that a person who did what she did should die. So you would think that the God who wrote that rule would want his rule carried out. But he didn't. He didn't want a dead woman. He wanted a repentant heart. He didn't want a convicted criminal. He wanted her back. The clash between Jesus and the Pharisees was a clash between these two views. They saw the law of Moses as a standard which must be met or God would be angry. Jesus saw the law as a tool to drive desperate people back to God. Paul said it this way. Why don't you read that with me? The law has become our tutor leading us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. A tutor is a teacher, you know, so it, it, you would have this, this, this adult teacher and your child, and they take, it's a picture is taking, taking the child by the hand and leading the child uh, from the law, by the law, leading us where? To Christ. Leading us to see our need of grace. I've been, uh, I've been observing this. It's, uh, I, you know, are we all reading through the Bible at various ways? Well, I have my own little way, and I read a chapter, and then I, I study it, of course. And uh, one of the things I keep seeing is every time Israel came back to God, the first thing they did is restore the altar of burnt offering. You know what that is? That's the big altar there in front of the tabernacle of the temple. And it's, it's where they, they, they put the, the, the morning and the evening sacrifice. Which you, 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 you lay hands on the thing and you're confessing the sins. What it is is an appeal to God. It's a confession of sin, acknowledgement of sin, and an appeal to God for mercy. What's the first thing Israel did every time they came back to God? They began to confess their sins, acknowledge that they needed mercy. You see this? You, yes? The first thing they would always do. You'd have this rebellious time. Uh, you know, when Ezra and Nehemiah came back and, they, and they're going to restore Jerusalem. What's the very first thing they built? The altar of burnt offering and began to call on God for grace. Acknowledging their sin and calling on God for grace. This is foundational. The law... The, the, the awareness of our sin leads us to despair and knowing that God must be merciful to us. The hymn says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." God's grace taught me to go, "Oh no, oy vey, I'm full of sin." And grace my fears relieved. Grace that taught my heart to fear. Not to be indifferent. Not to just because, oh, he's a loving guy. He likes you the way you are. <laughs> taught my heart to fear. And then grace, my fears relieved by showing me that he's made a way for me to wash me and forgive me and cleanse me. In the introduction to this gospel, John said this. Let you read that. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized, came into being, through Jesus Christ. 
Moses was a, a great man. Through him, God gave us a wonderful gift. The first five books of the Bible, called the Torah, the law, in which God revealed many aspects of his will. But through Jesus Christ, grace and truth were not only shown to be essential elements of God's character. Through Jesus, grace and truth actually, John says, came into being. In other words, Jesus not only showed them to us, he made them available to us. But we must not think that God showed no mercy before Jesus arrived. Look, the cross is the center of all human history. If you go back to Moses' time, that's like 1,400 years or so before Jesus. All those symbols, the burnt offerings, things like that. uh, Well, let's go back farther than that. Let's go back to Seth. Uh, Let's go back to, you know, uh, Adam and Eve. Let's go back to to, uh, Abraham. Every time you sacrificed this lamb or this goat or this bull or... You're laying your hands on the head, you're killing it, you're burning the thing before God, basically saying, this animal dies because I should. So there's an impartation, a transfer of my sin to this poor beast. Does anyone think, did they think that a dead goat somehow paid for their sin? They did not. No one, there was a sense in which this is a symbol. This is a type. This is telling us God is going to do something else. In the Old Testament, you looked forward in time to the cross. Someday, God will send a savior. Someday, God will send his own, his own sacrifice. He will, what is, what is Abraham name Mount Mar- uh, Jehovah Jireh? For in the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided a sacrifice. He will provide his own sacrifice. That's the fundamental thing. Every time you blow the shofar, you're calling on God to remember that he will provide his own sacrifice. It's all through. So the Old Testament looks forward to the cross. When we come into the New Testament, you and I now look back 2,000 years, and we look back to the cross. When we come, I just took communion, uh, and I took the symbols of his broken body and his shed blood. I am remembering and believing afresh. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you that an offering has been made. Not will be made, has been made for me and been finished. I'm laying hold of it by faith. The cross, there's only one reason any human on this planet will ever go to heaven out of all history because of Jesus. He has paid the price for the sin of the world. Looking forward to it, looking back to it, however it is, it's Christ. A merciful God. God has always been a merciful God who didn't want to judge people, but longed for them to repent and return to him. The entire Old Testament is full of examples of people who disobeyed God, deserved punishment, even death, but were given grace. That's because God's essential nature is love. But if people forget that fact and forget that he is a savior and take those rules at face value, the result is that they end up fearfully trying to keep each rule so that God won't become angry. And demanding everyone else do the same. Think about it. Cain murdered his brother Abel. But instead of ordering him to be executed, God gave him a sign to protect him. What's up with that? Or the nation of Israel worshiping a golden calf shortly after swearing to be loyal to God and calling down curses on themselves. 
if they disobeyed. Yet God didn't curse them. He didn't even leave them. He continued leading them to the promised land. Where's the justice in that? What happened to the rules? Ezra captures this mercy of God in his great prayer. Would you look with me? I want you to see this. This is a Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah is just to the left of Psalms. You get to Psalms, you're close. Nehemiah chapter 9. This is um, Israel has been in exile. They have come back about a hundred years earlier. And uh, they have come back. And now you have Ezra, the, the priest and the, and the, and the scribe. I, I believe Ezra is the first Pharisee. And I mean that in the most, in a, there's no, nothing negative in that comment. He set up the whole idea of we're coming back to the law and we're going to be faithful to it. He's a good man, a wonderful man. And a great leader. And then you've got Nehemiah, and he's building the walls. He's the, gov- he's, he's, uh, he's the governor of the province now for a temporary period of time uh, because the Persian king uh, loves him and has trusted him with this. Here they are having the whole nation gather, and Ezra prays on behalf of the whole nation. This is a, one of those restoration movements that I, that I spoke of. Listen to what he prays. I'll start at verse 9, but I want you to, here's the pattern I want you to see. He's going to say, you are so good to us, but we rebelled against you. And we, and then, then we, we walked away from you and we got in all this trouble, but then you forgave us. And then we got blessed again. And then, and then we rebelled again. And then you forgave us. And he goes through about four cycles. I won't take you through all four cycles, but just over and over. God who said, if you break my rules... I'm going to destroy you and cast you out. Doesn't. What is wrong with him? Okay. Look at verse 9 there. Uh, Nehemiah 9.9. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. And then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them. They passed through the, in the midst of the sea and on dry ground. So he's, he's rehearsing these great miracles. You, you hurled the pursuers into the depths and, and they, they drowned. You led with a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night to light their way for them in which they were to go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them. You gave them ordinances and true laws. That's the covenant. Good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law. Through your servant Moses, you provided bread from heaven and water from a rock. Notice the imagery, by the way, of the Gospel of John. All of these things are what Jesus is presented as. And he said, and you told them to enter in to possess the land. Now look at verse 16. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds, which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Now, what's the next thing he says? Read it out loud with me, whatever version. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And you did not forsake them. Look at that. This is Old Testament. This isn't New Testament. This is Ezra. 
The, really the first Pharisee. Does he understand the heart of God? We so deserve to be destroyed. But you are a God is who what? You are a God of forgiveness, compassionate, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. And then it goes on, it says, and so they made a calf out of molten metal, and then and, and and yet verse 19, in your great compassion. You did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them or guide them. Exactly what I just said. A pillar of fire by the night to light their way for them. You gave your spirit to instruct them. You didn't withhold the manna from them. They made this golden calf and you did not walk away from them. For 40 years you did it. Not just a day, not a week. 40 years you continued on with them. And then you gave them the land. You blessed them. You made it as numerous, numerous as the stars. And then verse 26. They became disobedient, rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who had admonished them, so that they might return to you, and committed great blasphemies. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of oppressors. Look at, but when they cried to you in the time of distress, you heard from heaven, and according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers. Look at verse 28. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again. What is wrong with this God? He just keeps forgiving people. For goodness sake. Zap them. It, 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 it's, that's not the last cycle. I mean, it goes through it again. He says, you know, we, we, you boarded with them for so many years and, and admonished them with your prophets. And they didn't listen again. And, 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 but you, and then he says, verse 31, but you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are what? A gracious and compassionate God. It just goes on. And I'll stop there. He replays for the nation their entire history and shows them how many times they deserved total destruction. Yet God kept giving them mercy instead of of words. Pardon me, in other words, he didn't follow his own rules. So when Jesus does what he does, gives mercy to a guilty woman, he isn't inventing some new interpretation of the law. He's reminding the Pharisees of how their God has always treated his people. He's reminding them, pardon me, got me last night too, that their God is merciful. You see this? Jesus is not inventing something new. He's not saying, oh, we're not, we're, that's the Old Testament. We're going to do the New Testament now because I'm here. He is a prophet right now. He's saying, it's always been this God. You have taken his law and you're killing people with it. And you're, you're judging people and you're harsh. He's always been a savior. Look at what he did for your fathers. Look at how rebellious they were. Look how much they deserved. Did he give them the rules? Or was he patient and merciful with them? He is totally right. As we've seen when a guilty woman was placed in front of Jesus for judgment. He didn't enforce the rules. But he didn't change the rules either. He left God's moral code firmly in place and warned her to bring her lifestyle up to God's standards. After all her accusers had left, he said, and I don't condemn you either. Go from now on what? Sin no more. He said the same sort of thing to a man healed by the pool of Bethesda. He said, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you and he doesn't mean or god will zap you with polio 
That's not his point. He's saying when you die, it'll get way worse. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said this. I do not, pardon me, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law, until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now it's interesting, he says least in the kingdom. That means you're in. You're just not, you're not impressing anybody. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We learn from things he taught later and from his apostles that what he meant by keeping even the least of these commandments were the moral teachings of the law, not all the religious rules, because he fulfilled all those religious requirements for us. Do you notice the distinction? There is moral laws, do not kill, do not lie, do not steal, etc. And then there is, there is religious laws. Um, eat this, don't eat that. At one point, Mark will, will point out, he declared all food clean. So when we serve bacon at our men's retreat, God is okay with it, and, and Dr. Atkins is, is delighted with it. Um, But the Sabbath, the food, the festivals, the clean, the unclean, even tithing. All of that has, in a sense, been fulfilled by Christ. Oh boy, I don't have to tithe. No, you don't. Nor do you get the blessing if you don't. Uh, but but you, do, you can go to heaven without it. You are, he's absolutely fulfilled all of these things for us. But the moral code, that never changes. That'll be true a billion years from now. Because that's the character of God. He is not a liar. He is not, he is, he's not disloyal. I mean, just go on through it. Those, um, those have passed away unless a person wishes to use them as a way to teach the Bible or to worship. So grace is not an excuse to keep on sinning. It's the opportunity to keep on trying until we learn how to obey. That is so good, it's, it's worth repeating in itself. Why don't you read it with me? So grace is not an excuse to keep on sinning. It's the opportunity to keep on trying until we learn how to obey. What does he want us to do? The same thing. Receive grace and recommit to the standard. Say that. Receive grace and recommit to the standard. Give grace and help people reach the standard. Say that. Give grace and help people reach the standard. We're not to ignore the standard or change the standard. But neither are we to use the standard harshly. We must always hope that a person will repent. Not that they be given the justice they deserve. Here are some guidelines to help us understand how we should and should not use God's rules. We should let his rules convict us of sin and drive us to repentance and grace. We should not use them to try to earn our salvation or gain favor with God. We should let God's rules teach us how to live godly lives. Paul said, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We should not. Use those rules to condemn people, but always seek to bring them back to God. We should let God's rules reveal his heart and character. He's very different from us, and his rules teach us about those differences. 
we should see his rules as a gift of his love, calling his children upward to become like him. How can we be sure of this? Because we just watched Jesus apply those rules. And if we know him, we know the father also. Would you stand with me? Don't we have a, a, a wonderful God? I mean, the more you get into the word, the more you watch Jesus and let him straighten your brains out. That's what he does. Jesus straightens your thinking out. You can get all kinds of weird. And then you come back and you, you let him teach you and you let him say, this is how it is. And it, sometimes what he says is just, it's so different at first. You're thinking, can that be right? And then when you let the Holy Spirit reveal it, you go, of course it's right. It's the only right. How could I have ever not known that? He is the son of God. He has come from heaven. Every other prophet, every other teacher comes and, and tells us what they think and what they think they hear. This one came from heaven and reports what he's seen. He is. He is the final decider of right and wrong and what's true. And uh, he is so good. Lord Jesus, we come to you this day. And we hear you call us to, to follow you, to walk righteously and to be holy. But you, we hear you also call us to be gracious to be kind, to seek for people to be saved in repentance, not to be cast aside and judged for their sin. Lord, give us a heart like yours. And Lord, we just acknowledge today that that's the way you treat us. Just as you did Israel, even in we have our bad seasons in that you pick us up, dust us off and, and call us forward again. Because of you, we'll go to heaven. Because of your patience with us and perseverance with us, we will be with you forever. We love you and we honor you for this. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. I guess I will. I feel just one, just keep with your head bowed for a minute. I've presented, as, as I can see him there, the Lord Jesus. And you see him holding to a standard. He doesn't change the standards of God. He doesn't say, oh, and it doesn't matter anymore. I just love you the way you are. He says, I love you. And, but not at all the way you are. Uh, but I will, I, will, I will take you, and I will train you, and I will teach you, and I will lift you upward, and you will become like me. That's what he says. If you're willing, if you have not surrendered to him as your Lord, and said, I, I, I put my hand in yours. I'm not asking you to just save my soul. I am asking you to take and form me and make me uh, and into your image. I thank you for your mercy along the way that you constantly forgive me. But I do not ignore the holy standards of God. I will not only let you, I will seek for you to make me pure, to make me kind, to make me generous, to make me faithful and reliable. Go ahead, work on my character, do your deep work in me. I welcome you to do that. If anyone needs to say that, would you just raise your hand? I'll just agree with you. Just, but I just feel like there's a, a word in this that needs to be responded to. Just say, I'm submitting. I am submitting to that upward call. 
I am not judging it. I am not running from it. I am not looking for loopholes. I simply say, come and make me into a child of God. Would you raise your hands? Just hold it up. Father, see our hands. We are surrendering gladly to you because of who you are. You are holy. You're loving. You're good. You're wise. Your ways are right, and they bring life, and they bring peace. And we want to be part of that in every form. I raise my hand, Lord. Just wherever you find, and I, we don't need to look deeply. I know where it is. Where those attitudes that aren't yours, we give them and surrender them. Say, come Holy Spirit, make us into children of God. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. If you agree with that, would you say amen? amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.